0: Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Retired British teacher Christine Speak has been visiting Hong Kong for the 165th anniversary of St. Paul's College. She came there in 1954 with her late husband, Reverend Geoffrey Speak, who was the ninth principal of the college, oversaw its expansion and would go on to co-found the English Schools Foundation. Between anniversary celebrations I caught up with Mrs. Speak at a hotel in Causeway Bay. She retired in 1985 and visits Hong Kong once every three years or so to see old friends.
1: I came because uh, for many years ago I uh, used to teach in St. Paul's College Bonham Road. It is now celebrating its 165th anniversary. So uh, I came out for speech day and uh, two of the prizes were in my husband's name and mine. Your husband's name? Geoffrey. So I was asked to give out these two prizes, which was very pleasing. And then uh, there was a big concert at the Cultural Centre on Wednesday. And that that was a really professional affair. Uh, the sort of operetta that was performed afterwards was about uh, Bishop Hoare, uh, a previous principal in... Uh, in early 1900s and then tomorrow will be a big banquet at the convention centre. So it's all go on the social scene? Absolutely <laughs> yes, uh, I've met many friends but Hong Kong is a very different place if I can go back to uh, the time when we first came Yes, you came here in 1954 so
0: tell me about, you You both came from the UK, you were both so, uh, so uh, Jeffrey and uh, Jeffrey Speak and yourself were in education
1: Yes, well, my husband was ordained, and at the time we were working in Wakefield in Yorkshire, or just outside Wakefield, so he was working as a principal or a vicar No, no he was he was the curate. We weren't all that happy. Uh, I was teaching, I went into Wakefield each day, but we wanted to go overseas, and uh, we met through mutual friends the Bishop of the then Bishop of Hong Kong, Bishop Hall, Ronald Hall. And he looked at us and said, Ah, when you come to Hong Kong, I shall send you to St Paul's. And it was a lot easier to to come to Hong Kong than to argue with him. So we came uh, a year or so later. So in 1954, did you come by ship? We came by ship, yes. It took us uh, four weeks. When we left in uh, 1986... Uh, it took us 12 hours to get back. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, it's a big difference. So four weeks, so you would have left from Southampton?
1: No, we left from Liverpool. Uh, and actually the boat went to uh, Rotterdam first, and then on the way out we called at Aden, uh, Bombay, Singapore, Manila and Hong Kong. What were your first impressions?
0: Do you remember sort of like the boat coming in, the rope being thrown down, and you've arrived... You've left Wakefield in northern England, and what were your first impressions? What were your feelings?
1: I think I was a bit bewildered um, because it was so very different uh, to see so many Chinese people, Um, although on the way out, of course, we had stopped at all these ports. We were met by the then principal of St Paul's College and his wife, and they were most hospitable, took us to their house, uh, their flat on top of the school, And we stayed there for a week. And how would you have described Hong
0: Kong? I mean, were there lots of people with rickshaws, bicycle rickshaws?
1: Yes, certainly rickshaws. They were centred at the bottom of Wyndham Street. The urban area was, of course, very much smaller. Everything goes back in Hong Kong, really, to 1949, when the Communists finalised their takeover of, of China. The frontier was closed. There was no way that you could get into China and it wasn't very easy for the, anybody Chinese to get into Hong Kong, because Hong Kong felt fairly full then. I think the population was only about two to three million, but it, was, uh, it felt very crowded. There was an airport, but it was very small. There were not many planes in those days. There was a flying boat. And if you wanted to go from Kowloon to Saikong, you had to cross the runway And when there was a plane coming in, the lights turned red. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, then you could cross. Most of the time they were green. Uh, And the new territories were very, very rural. Uh, Rice fields... Uh, they were just starting to grow vegetables instead of rice to feed the growing urban population. The villages were very small, very old. Uh, Tin, for example, had about three or four villages along the side of the hills. There was an iron mine at Ma uh, There was a train that ran from Tsimsa through to Wu, but it stopped very firmly uh, before the border and... Uh, at, the, at that time, you couldn't get through into China. You had to, if you did go to China, you had to walk across the bridge. So, your husband Geoffrey
0: Speak, who was a curate in Northern England, you both were in education. You come over to Hong Kong. So, what were
1: your jobs at St Paul's College? Well, I was supposed to go to another of the Anglican schools, but we had a small child at the time, and I wasn't ready to move immediately. The day after we landed, into school. So uh, I was given a part-time job in St Paul's. My husband was full-time. He taught uh, biblical knowledge and English, and I taught English and geography. And tell me about the school at that time. I mean, who were there? Was it a boys' school? Oh, yes. Well, it's been around for 165 years, mostly as a boys' school. But during the war, when the Japanese occupied Hong Kong, the principal, Evan Stewart, uh, was interned. He was injured, actually, fighting the Japanese, and he was interned during the war. So the school was taken in, the boys' school, was taken in by the girls, St Paul's Girls' College, and became the co-educational school that it is still today. But in about 1950, St Paul's started to re-establish itself with two streams in the secondary school, and a very small primary school. And then they moved into what was St John's College in Bonham Road, an L-shaped building, somewhat colonial in style. St John's built the new college out in Popforum Road, where it now is. And gradually they moved out and St Paul's enlarged, moved in and has grown from that into a six-stream school.
0: Can you remember
1: when you were first starting out in the
0: mid-1950s here in Hong Kong, uh, what kind of geography you taught? I mean, was it about Oxbow Lakes and sedimentation and this is Jurassic Rock or was it actually this is the colonial countries of
1: Great Britain, that kind of geography? No, we, we very much followed the the English syllabus except that in the first year in the secondary school uh, we taught uh, essentially Hong Kong uh, and then in the second year it was a regional geography of the southern continents. Uh, third year was North America and Asia uh, and fourth and fifth years led up to the certificate education and this was very broadly physical geography Human geography, economic geography, the works.
0: So did you and the pupils go out on field trips here in Hong Kong?
1: <laughs> yes. Many of my students, when they come to meet me now, say, I remember when you took us on a field trip to the Patsine Range or something like that, which was, as I say, very rural. So you would go out hiking with them to show the different rock formations? or oh, Land use mainly, uh, but rock formations, Yes. Yes, where I did a short time teaching in St Stephen's College, girls' college. And the first thing I did with Form 1, which I think frightened everybody, was to rush them across the main road to look at a retaining wall and see all the different sorts of rocks that were there.
0: we well, still got a few. <laughs> oh, Yes. <laughs> Now, when you arrive in the 50s and the 60s, of course, you're describing a time when, post-1949, you're going to get an influx of tens of thousands of refugees who would then um, end up,
1: you know, living in squatter huts on the hillsides. Well, in Christmas 1953, there was a huge fire. Shepkit-Maze, we came just a few months after. But that fire, I think, uh, just turned Hong Kong round because the government began to realise that it had a very great responsibility for a large number of people who were in Hong Kong for choice and were uh, determined to make their way. Hong Kong has always been an entrepot place where people from China have passed through and gone out to other places. But what do you recall of those squatter huts? They covered the hillsides. They were built of bits of wood, corrugated iron, anything that could be found to put up a, a, a shed. But they were pretty well controlled by uh, the government, all the huts were numbered. But it was then that, I say, the government started being responsible for rehousing people. The first resettlement blocks were about uh, three storeys high, that's all. One family, one room, communal cooking area, toilet at the end of the passage, it was very hard.
2: Across Hong Kong harbour, beyond Kowloon, lies Red China, whose refugees swarm in increasing numbers into the British colony, fleeing to the island to escape life in Red China. They gain liberty, but bring a great problem with them. Where are they going to be housed? Food supplies, for the time being, come from sources abroad. Innumerable harbour craft, from large junks to sampans, are the permanent homes of close on 150,000 people. Living on one of the world's finest natural harbours, which annually accommodates nearly 30 million tons of shipping. Marking the refugee resettlement area are large blocks of flats built for them by the authorities. Yet, as the newcomers form more than one-third of Hong Kong's now swollen population of nearly three millions, even the new buildings are not enough, and still more and more Chinese pour in. So great is the press on dwelling space that shanty towns house a great many. And anyway... They hope to graduate to the apartment houses eventually. The latest arrivals often depend for food on charity organisations. 25,000 people are registered at the Bishop Ford Food Centre, a Catholic relief service. Small wonder that one of the best-loved men working among the refugees is Father Howard True. It has been said that many people from the mainland are undesirables, some even criminal. But making allowance for that, the great majority come to Hong Kong to escape tyranny.
0: One of the key issues also of that period particularly going into the
1: 1960s was water shortages indeed at one time we had a great problem uh, all the reservoirs dried up of course during the winter and uh, water was extremely short we built more reservoirs there was um, plover cove and high island uh, schemes just simply took in a lot of the sea. Everybody complained that their cups of tea tasted of salt, of brackish water, but they boosted the supplies. But water was only turned on for a few hours and you would see the coolies turning the water on the taps in the main road uh, for each block as they came along.
3: jam-packed with more than three and a half million people, five times the population when the war ended, Hong Kong faces a problem with no immediate solution an acute water shortage taps threaten to run dry and calamity draws near for the town refugees depending on their communal supply the reservoirs have become dry land and in place of torrents, only a trickle of water runs in the streams that feed them on Lantau Island, a 13 million pound reservoir will provide 35 million gallons a day when the work's completed. But that's no comfort now. From the new tanks, submarine pipelines will carry the water seven miles to Hong Kong Island. Meanwhile, the people fervently hope that tap water will keep running. The basic cause of the shortage is the swarm of refugees who have escaped into the colony from Red China. Food for them can be obtained from many sources. Water has to be on the spot. Baby's bath is reduced to a soap rinse washed off by harbour water. The older ones look after themselves. There's a lot to be said for large families. They spread the load and from tots upwards, everybody carries the can.
1: And at one stage, I think it was in 1966, there was a great problem because they had built a new pipeline. I think it's still there huge pipeline, to bring water from China. But the agreement with the Chinese was that they would turn the water on on October the 1st. And this was the time when there was a certain amount of political unrest, uh, commonly known as the disturbances or the troubles. This was in 1967. And there was a great debate. Would they turn the water on because of the difficulty in political relationships? or would they not, and would we have no water at all? And if you had a young family and children with nappies to wash, you didn't throw them away in those days, it really was quite a problem in the heat to get washing water, uh, water stored for the next four days.
0: Yes, because it came on for four hours every four four days.
1: fourth day. So So it's not every day, is it? Not every day, no, not then.
0: No, that really did require a lot of planning.
1: It did, yes. And we had armours in those days, Chinese servants, and so there were sort of six of us in the house, and uh, this was... it was not easy. But on October the 1st, the water was turned on, and everybody heaved a sigh of relief. What do you remember about, as you class them, the sort of disturbances, the riots in Hong Kong at that time? Uh, well, as far as possible, one kept out of the areas where there were any troubles. There were one or two areas where we said it was not sensible to go, but on the whole, it upset us very little. Oh, it didn't disturb you too much? No. no. Right. That's interesting. Cause it, no, because we would hear reports on the BBC World News of these terrible demonstrations, and our families got very perturbed, but, uh, in fact... For us, it was not a serious.
0: Now, you'd left Wakefield in northern England. You wanted a different
1: kind of experience. Uh, Did you find that in Hong Kong? (laughs) Oh, indeed, yes. It was still a little colonial, inasmuch as the social distinctions for those uh, expatriates was very marked. We were not exactly familiar with that, so we were more happy to have our Chinese friends and keep up with them.
0: Yes, I can imagine that there would have been quite a segregation, really.
1: Yes, and that I think remained to some extent until uh, until 1997. To a very limited extent, because of course many of the Chinese entrepreneurs were extremely wealthy and, and accepted uh, the higher echelons of government. And whereas when we first came out, all the government officers pretty well were English, uh, by the time we left, they <laughs> were all Chinese.
0: Now, tell me about your husband
1: Geoffrey Speaks' work. I mean, did he continue in the role of a curate once he was here? Oh, no, no. Uh, I don't think he was very happy in that way. Uh, He was an administrator. I think I could call him a man of vision. He was forward-looking, and he appreciated that with the growth of Hong Kong's population, expansion of education, of good education, uh, was vital to provide new leaders for the place. So he set about transforming uh, St Paul's College from a two-stream school. What's a two-stream school? Well, we have Form 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, and then uh, the school was expanded uh, to uh, six streams, so A to F. We were brought out, actually, uh, because the university was introducing a two-year six-form course comparable with what well, called advanced levels, And the majority of the Chinese teachers were not able to, um, were not academically trained for that level.
0: Yeah, that would have been an issue. I mean, when you look back at the mid-1950s, I mean, this is also a a time where a lot of children didn't have access to school or would have had only
1: access to primary, wouldn't they? Compulsory education, education for all, was only introduced in nineteen seventy two or three, I think. There was fierce competition to get into any good school. Uh, The queues to get into uh, uh, St Paul's sort of stretched all along Bonham Road. (laughs) Uh, It's
0: sad in some ways, isn't it, that people would have been stymied in their lives because they didn't have access to a good education, even though they probably could have thrived with it.
1: I think most children who wanted education got it. Uh, All the primary schools worked a morning shift and an afternoon shift.
0: So children would do half day. Mm.
1: Eight to to one, and one thirty to five thirty. Mm. That sort of those sort of hours.
0: So you were you were working at St Paul's College. Your husband then um, helps found the English
1: Schools yeah. Foundation. He left the he left St Paul's in 1967. Uh, I went on there until 1970, and then I moved into the university. Um, So, University of Hong Kong? University of Hong Kong. I was doing the postgraduate certificate of education work.
0: So what kind of research did you do?
1: Uh, In education, and curriculum development, the problems of trying to move a Western-style curriculum into an Eastern environment. Such as? When I first went back to England, I complained that all the atlases were centred on Europe. And I... Brought out the Hong Kong atlases, which were centered on Hong Kong. This was regarded as very funny. <laughs> now, when you look back at your time, you had
0: this growing family. You were also uh, looking to help develop education in Hong Kong. You've described to me how the new territories were very rural. Did you used to get in your car and go off to a beach there? What, what did you do in your sort of uh, leisure
1: time? To begin with, uh, the the popular beach for most Europeans was uh, Deepwater Bay. And so we would go off there for an afternoon swim. There was no bus service then, so uh, people without cars <laughs> didn't, didn't make it there. Went to uh, Repulse Bay instead. Or Sheko, uh, that was quite a big beach area. To get to any beaches in the new territories, you had to take your car across the car ferry. So there was no, no tunnel then. So, where did the car ferry go from and to? Uh, central district to Yamate.
0: And it was a regular
1: service? Oh yes, it was a service as soon as they filled the boat and then they crossed. Uh, there would be about 20 or 30 cars on each. Uh, and then did you have to go sort of up, was it called, route twisk? Oh yes, route twisk, Tune 1 to Sacramento. <laughs> ah, uh, There was a road all the way along the coast to uh, what was then castle peak and is now tune one i suppose there would have been no air pollution in those days very little <laughs> the factories of course were started when the labor supply was provided by the people who were come in as refugees so um, yeah when you say factories
0: though i mean so they were very they were often quite small
1: yes uh the first factory area to be developed was in North Point. The town didn't go beyond Causeway Bay, except for the dockyard at Daikusing. And then when we came, there were already factories established in Mun. Uh, that became the, the biggest manufacturing area.
0: In the early days, I mean, what were they
1: producing? Flashlights, vacuum flasks, uh, small consumer items. Plastic was just coming in as a uh, as an important raw material because Hong Kong had no resources, no coal, no oil, no water supply. Uh, It was all very much of a struggle to get things going. Most of the capital was provided by the factory owners who had been in Shanghai. They got out with a good deal of the capital and I think a certain amount of machinery. Interesting times. Very interesting times, yes.
0: You were describing how you had armors in the family home. These would have been the traditional Chinese armors: black trousers, white tops.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, you had a cook armour, who uh, was probably the baby armour as well, uh, and she was immaculately dressed in a white top and uh, black trousers. And then you had a wash armour, uh, who wore blue top and uh, black trousers. They had, for the most part, long plaits. And if they were married, they uh, put the hair up in a bun. We paid the wash armour $90 a month, and the cook baby armour was very, very uh, prestigious. Uh, she got $140 or 150 And when's that? It's 1954. Then, as education grew, the fewer people were willing to become servants, or they went into the factories. So eventually we used to bring in uh, maids from the Philippines and we had one of the first Philippine maids, delightful girl, still in touch with her. Now I think there are hundreds, thousands of uh, overseas workers.
0: Oh, yes. Mm. Yes. And then they're still very much contributing to Hong Kong's economy.
1: Moving day
2: at Chun Wan in the colony of Hong Kong. 1,800 boat dwellers have been found good accommodation ashore and had to say goodbye to the sandpans on which many have lived all their lives. The older ones may have regretted the move, but for a variety of reasons, the authorities insisted. This part of the waterfront is being reclaimed as land to make room for factories and schools, and even small, overcrowded boats can't float without water. Unlike our gypsies, the people weren't just told to get out and find somewhere else, the government resettlement department have built flats for them. All they had to do was to move in. Each family was given rooms of a size depending on the numbers. Of late years, Chunwon's population problem has become acute. Refugees from the Chinese mainland swelled the figure from 10,000 to 100,000. Land for the building of flats was at a premium that the only course was to measure the required space and reclaim some of the harbour. Rents were range from three and sixpence a week to nine shillings. Having no more use for the sandpans, they broke them up for firewood. On some of these 350 little boats, as many as 12 people had been living. Their new quarters will seem quite spacious.
1: Tell me more about
0: um, your husband, Geoffrey
1: Speak. Well, as I say, he was very much a a forward-looking person. He built St Paul's, literally. What, he built up the college? (laughs) Yes, a new building. It was a small L-shaped building in the middle of a little garden when we took on. There there was a library. It had six books. Six? (laughs) Yes. Uh, The school was, as I say, expanding at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I was put in charge of the books. The expatriate community was, was... growing very rapidly. Also, the need for schooling for expatriate children, who did not speak Chinese for the most part, was becoming very acute. There were primary government, primary schools for expatriates in, on Hong Kong side. And there was Glen Ely and uh, Kennedy Road, Jr., Corrie Bay, The Peak. But for secondary education, they had to make the journey across to King George V. Which was where? Kowloon. And this was quite a journey. There was no tunnel, there were no cross-tunnel buses. There was... Uh, you had to cross on the uh, Star Ferry, then take a bus. It was a long journey for a, a young child, and the bishop was uh, very well aware uh, of the problems for expatriates, and he felt that it was necessary to s- expand English education. He got with Jeff, who uh, also was a very forward-looking person, and uh, persuaded him to leave some poles, which I was very sad about, uh, and to start uh, what has now become the English Schools Foundation. They started a new school in uh, the old military hospital in Bowen Road. Started with form one, forms one, two, and three, and then built it up. My daughter was the in the first form one went right through to become head girl Ah, that
0: was how the ESF was set up and as you say in a former military hospital was where the, the first school was
1: yes uh, we lived in the, uh, the previous matron's quarters which was an enormous uh, colonial style house with the most wonderful balcony which we used to stand on and watch watch the tunnel being built really <laughs> watch the tunnel being built so what could you see The building works, uh, obviously, not the (laughs) underwater, uh, or the uh, the approach road and so on. We looked straight down on that.
0: Did you have a car? Oh, yes. What kind of car?
1: Ah, well, I think we first had an Austin, a baby Austin, then a bigger Austin. uh, What, have you got more children? (laughs) Yes. Uh, And then... uh, one time we had two reynolds which didn't work very well if you tried to go up the peak you had to get out and hit certain parts of the mechanism before it would go and then we had toyotas i remember the 25th anniversary of the school they had a big dinner the governor came and i was sitting next to him it was chris Patton. and uh <laughs> I've never known anybody able to talk so fast and eat so much. (laughs) That's
0: probably better not said. No, I think that's definitely going to be said.
1: (laughs) He was a delightful person.
0: Mrs Christine Speak talking there on her life in education in Hong Kong. Next week, I walk on the Wong Nai Chung Gap Trail with history researcher Philip Cracknell to mark 75 years since the Battle of Hong Kong. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.